out here. Captain! Signatures detected. Shields up. Signatures detected. Context Southeast Command. What's happening? Context Southeast Command. Delay that order. Context Southeast Command. This is the captain. Context Southeast Command. Get out of my chair. Chair, 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 chair. We have engaged the Klingons. 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 Welcome to The Greatest Discovery. It's a Star Trek Discovery podcast from the makers of The Greatest Generation. I'm one of those makers, Ben Harrison. Over here is Adam Pranica. Hey, over there. <laughs> way up here, way up here in the snow, Ben. Oh, that's yeah, where, that's where I'm at. You're uh, you're buried up there in the uh, in Seattle. We got. I mean, look, I may not be the most reliable source for uh, measurement estimates, but it looks like <laughs> we've got between uh, like eight to ten inches up here. Uh, wow. Um, yeah, I wouldn't know what eight to 10 inches looks like personally. Yeah. (laughs) Wish I did. My gauge, uh, is broken. So, uh, completely impossible to know how much snow is on the ground up here. I went to a, uh, a menswear like show at the convention center with, uh, with our pod daddy, Jesse Thorne the other day. And one of the gifts in the swag bag was like a four inch ruler. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I, I got I got a big pop off of him when I said, "Oh, finally, I'll be able to find out how long my dick is." Ghost ride bits. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm an idiot. Uh, Jesse Thorne, legendarily difficult to get heat off of. So good job by you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it, it is very satisfying to uh, to get a joke to land with that guy. Nice work. Weight of the world on his shoulders and everything. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, did you pick up anything? Uh, I didn't. It was uh, there was a lot of like vintagey stuff, and that's not really something. I, I don't feel like I know enough about vintage clothing to know when I'm making a a good purchase. Hmm. And also, I am a uh, like that's why you go with a vintage clothing lifeguard like Jesse Thorne. Yeah, but he and I are like the same size. He's he's very good at finding stuff that fits him and I am not. Like mm. the the people that dressed the way I want to dress in the past were not the same size as I am. <laughs> they you all know? took their own lives. <laughs> <laughs> and so the clothes are in uh, pretty bad shape. I saw some stuff I really liked, but it was from like uh Japanese manufacturers that were you know, trying to trying to get a toehold in the U.S. market, so they they mm. brought samples that I found delightful, but uh, but I couldn't I couldn't buy anything because they didn't have they couldn't pack enough to have stuff to sell. You know, mm. but a quality hang. Yeah, it was a, it was a quality hang. Jesse had to race out of there because he thought his dog had run away, uh, but it was it was okay. Dog dog was accounted for almost immediately. Nothing quite as fraught as a dog emergency. Shoots out uh, those threat ganglia, Ben. <laughs> Shoots them right what? out of there, right out of your head. Yeah, we get a lot. We get a lot of close-up threat ganglia action in this episode. Do you want to get into it? <laughs> yeah, uh, Saru really dumps him out. Yeah, yeah, and uh, Michael Burnham holds up that measuring stick to see how long they are. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, let's get into it, Ben. It's Star Trek Discovery, Season 2, Episode 4, an obble for Charon. (laughs) (laughs) Do I need to take that again? Uh, I don't know. I don't know how to say it. An obble for Charon. 
what you want to do is is put those obols into the eyes of uh of your devil dogs right that's that's how you get across the sticks you let the oh, devil yeah. dog eat the obols of course Charon was the name of the uh, the ship in the in the mirror universe the big imperial flagship yeah, yeah. an obol is an ancient greek coin worth one sixth of a drachma oh yeah duh how did you not know that you got any change for a drachma Oh, because you got to give Ke- Charon the the coin to get across the river. You know what? Uh, Charon's not going to make change for you at the ferry boat station. No, no, it's exact change exact only. Change, exact change to get over the sticks. That's for sure. Yeah. These these days, you uh, you have to load up your tap card <laughs> to get across the river. <laughs> you see, guys jumping over the turnstile to get on yeah, that yeah. ferry boat. Bunch of assholes. Fucking transit police running after him Charon's not gonna <laughs> not gonna allow that he runs a pretty tight ship yes as it were uh our uh, our episode today opens with uh number one stamos or actually she just goes by number one now she used to be number one stamos oh uh hopping off the transporter pad boy you have a 10 year old issue of us magazine on your coffee table <laughs> for that reference <laughs> yeah Jeez. <laughs> Speaking of uh, references, no one will get. <laughs> <laughs> I really liked how she was kind of styled with uh, very like 1960s hair, you know? Yeah. Like she, she very much looks transitional for, you know, ep- episode one TOS, right? Yeah. Yeah, agreed. She's eating a very 60s era hamburger lunch, too, right? Yeah, she has a hamburger. I guess 60s era in all but sauce, because I doubt they were doing that many habanero fries in the 60s. Boy, and she really, I mean, speaking of dumping things out, she really yeah, she, she really <laughs> soaks those fries, Ben. I don't think those those are going to be crispy for longer than another minute. I, I respect using the hot sauce liberally, though, you know? That's a real power move. Like... <laughs> to to sit down and I've not even tried this hot sauce, but I'm just dumping a lot of it on the food. Yeah, like, I'm a like you get a sauce on the side that don't you like for dipping? She's a she's a bit of a heat seeker. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she's got some updates for Pike. Uh, the entrepreneur is still in real bad shape, and uh, <laughs> I don't know. Like I I rewound this to see if there was a connection. Because they had like a cascade failure of all the systems on the Enterprise, mm-hmm. and uh, she's telling him about all of that, and he says, "Rip out all that hologram shit." <laughs> so I guess they're kind of retconning that the Enterprise doesn't have hologram uh, uh, communication systems, um, which is you know just smart, I guess. Pike seems to be a little bit confused about the difference between correlation and causation. Like, I don't think the hologram <laughs> has anything to do with these failures, but whatever. Well, guy's just scared of ghosts. Yeah. Yeah. We Now that we know Pike for four episodes, I think we can safely say kind of a weirdo. <laughs> yeah, and not a flawless captain by any means. No. Um, which I like. Yeah. Uh, I like that he's flawed, but not damaged you know yeah that's a good description he's not dark and haunted he's just not totally great at the job yeah like that's that's so interesting like he doesn't read as particularly smart 
You know, like so often you get you get like a, a captain who seems to know all the moves before they happen and makes yeah. the perfect decision every time. He seems like someone who's generally in an emergency kind of reaching. Yeah. But he's also like fucking self confident as hell. And I think that's probably gotta be a a good asset if you're trying to convince people to make you the captain of the flagship. Yeah. Yeah. He's got that haircut. The confident mm-hmm. haircut. He pointed it out on the chart. That's that was the <laughs> subtitle. Yeah. Give me give me the B seven <laughs> confident haircut. Oh no, Pike, you picked B eight. If you like me, you're Bring it on. Uh, <laughs> the bowler. Oh. <laughs> So something about the uh, the Spock mystery stinks to high hell. Um, I kind of started to smell Section 31 on the Spock mystery, like why oh. Spock is being accused of a of a heinous crime and why he's on the run. That's interesting. Um, because number one, number one is relating that like it just doesn't add up. Like nobody that knows Spock well can can square this circle. Um, and I guess the present—it's just the presence of Section Thirty-One in the in the season that is making me think that. But we shall see. So the thing that she gives Pike—that is a warp signature of the shuttle that Spock stole from the psychiatric facility. The discovery is going to go chase after it, leaving Number One behind. She was just there for a quick visit. She was just there for repetexposition because <laughs> she really did kind of repeat a lot of the last time on Star Trek Discovery story yeah. in their conversation. I really liked her, though. Yeah, me too. We get so little of her this ep. I, I have read that uh, she will be more of a going concern in future episodes. She just fucking walks into the room like she owns it, you know? She should be captain. Ben, they've put the space booger into... Uh, you know how you've been calling the room that Spock dies in Star Trek II the Spock box? Yeah. Uh, I'm thinking of calling the spore chamber the spork box. <laughs> <laughs> that's where the uh, that's where the Megu has been isolated. It's sort of its own little brig situation. Yeah. It's just Tilly and Stamets in this first scene. Tilly's like feeling real bad about like the like having interacted with fake. Goo May has made her feel really bad about the way she didn't really connect with May as a kid. Right. And uh, and this goo is like is real active. It's like squirming around in there. It even reaches out and like makes a, a fake hand to try to connect with Tilly from the other side. If it were pink, it would more clearly evoke the feeling of the Ghostbusters 2 goo. Right. Or the Odo goo. Yeah. Yeah. Um. But it is black and gross. <laughs> it looks like a booger when you've been like in the mountains for a few days and you've inhaled a lot of like particulate dirt. <laughs> it is. It's very unfriendly looking. It's very like HR Giger, right? HR Googer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's let's never leave one of those behind. We're no, pi- we're no, picking can't. them all up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so they have a. McLaughlin group. Issue one. They're discussing the Red Angel, just to like remind everybody that that's a part of the story. <laughs> but also, Saru has come down with a cold, and uh, you know he's doing the thing where you hold the the mug of tea with 
with both hands. Yeah, that's uh, the international sign of I'm coming down with something. Yeah, and uh, it's like get get off the deck, Saru. You know, like we don't need we don't need you getting the rest of us sick. We don't use, need you sneezing on people's faces and not apologizing like fucking Linus. It's like the obvious office workplace mistake of someone yeah. going into work when they shouldn't because they feel obligated to do so. Yeah. Linus is talking now, and they've also kind of retconned Linus being unintelligible previously. Yeah, they heard your comments, I guess. Like, Alex Kurtzman directed that first episode, right? Yeah. I have to think that, like, there are people working on Discovery that are annoyed with the way he does things. Whoa. Hold on while I put on these potholders, man. That's a pretty hot take. I'm just saying, like, they're they're covering up mistakes of his in this episode. Oof. I I mean, I'm willing to believe that. Like, the the hologram communications thing and the Linus being a Star Wars character thing are are mistakes. And this episode, like, writes explanations for those in. I wonder how you feel if you're Kurtzman and you see this happen as the show rolls out. I think you have to be cool with it because it's the part of any creative endeavor where you work with with a group like you can't take this shit personally yeah and i i would i would imagine that like you have to rely on people to cover your mistakes in a collaborative creative environment like this yeah because there's a lot to keep track of in the star trek universe and assholes on the internet like me are gonna catch you every time ben this scene isn't very long but it feels like one of the first conference room scenes we've gotten on discovery which which was like a main leitmotif in TNG, right? You'd always have a conference group, a conference room scene. Yeah, it was a it was a staff meeting show that was yeah. that happened to be set in space. Yeah, it was incidentally science fiction. <laughs> um, interesting that the conference room is the ready room. Yeah, Pike comes in and tells everybody to clear out, gives them some coordinates to warp toward. And then when they're all gone, he explains to Burnham that they're chasing Spock and they're they're going to go, uh, you know, see if they can't, like, help him because it seems like he needs some help right now. And Burnham is feeling a type of way about the idea of her being the tip of the spear on that project. She doesn't really want to interact with Spock. She feels really bad about their relationship and doesn't feel like her being the one to bring this message is a great idea. Pike wanders into that social trap that I think uh, I think everyone has from time to time where you assume a relationship is good until <laughs> you invite one or both of those people to a thing. And then the person you've invited is like, yeah, actually, uh, we're both not going to come to that because we're not together anymore. You know? Yeah. Like, Pike rightly assumes that Michael Burnham will be interested in being... Uh, heavily involved in this part of the mission and uh it's gotta hurt to have that come flying back at him that is a terrible trap to fall into i mean maybe the one thing that is great about pike is that he's able to handle those things with some aplomb he doesn't get totally bent out of shape at having made something awkward right they don't really get to finish this conversation before a massive banger gets dropped on him They've fallen into the clutches of Mr. Shadow from The Fifth Element. (laughs) Uh, There's a big, like, angry-looking ball outside the ship. And it's definitely, like, an artifact, right? Because it's got, like, 
wheels turning and and like modules that are clearly like distinct from other parts of it but they don't really like classify it you know they don't they don't call it a ship they call it a sphere i think they did a good job in not really giving us a clear look at it in its entirety you only see pieces of it through the haze you don't yeah, see it and, in totality and every time they have like a diagram of it on a screen it looks pretty different from what we see yeah which uh I guess means they're either like looking at it from a different angle or it like shows up to sensors in a different way from visually or something like that. Right. Uh, but this thing has them trapped and they cannot break free. And uh, not only that, but it's starting to like fuck with the computer. There's a great scene where everybody starts speaking like Klingon and German and Chinese and Spanish to each other. And Saru, who's been, like, sent home sick, has to be called up to the bridge because uh, we learned uh, previously that he speaks 94 languages. So he can actually understand everything everybody is saying long enough to, to fix. He, he kind of puts a Band-Aid on the situation, right? I think in a different show or a different director's hands, this scene would be really cheesy and bad. But I think they yeah. really pulled this off in a fun way. Yeah, I really liked the um, the crosstalk yeah. element of it. Like yeah. they're they're talking over each other, and so I found myself going like, "Is that? Oh, that's like German. Oh no, like wait, is it Spanish?" And and that that feeling of kind of being off balance. Uh, was a, was really effective to kind of convey how confusing this is for everyone. I like that in most people's comments, there was a word of universal knowledge. Like, like there's one word not in the language that is said the same way in any language. Right. For context. Saru being one of those, yeah, right? When yeah. she calls him up to the bridge. Yeah. Yeah, it was cool. The banger has full stopped the ship. It has knocked out a bunch of systems. And more than anything, it has isolated department to department on board yeah there's uh limited communications and uh anybody not on the bridge at the at the beginning is subject to uh universal translator right. shortcomings unless they all speak earth english i thought it was really interesting that how this episode makes the case that you know like so often it is life support or engineering or Helm, that would be like the most critical system on a ship. But this episode really makes the case that comms is maybe one of the most vital systems on a ship. And when it's knocked out, it really fucks things up for the rest of the crew. Yeah. This is a uh, computer virus that is coming from the sphere, as far as they can tell. Saru and Michael Burnham uh, are dispatched to go fix that. Uh, but uh, we check in with engineering where um jet reno is actually on the ship yeah and in one of her first actions she gets into a sassy bitch competition with stamets <laughs> somebody say sassy and uh, and stamets brings the sass yeah it is a i would say kind of a tie game yeah. who's the sassiest in this because it's it's a little bit of like a like a souped up car versus hybrid electric yeah kind of argument like that they're having like she's she's a real diesel purist yeah and he's a he's like a plug-in hybrid guy she's unnecessarily put smokestacks on her truck <laughs> <laughs> uh 
Um, but she's all about that dilithium, and Stamets makes the kind of environmental argument against it, uh, which ironically kind of becomes the argument against the mycelial network later. But uh, but they're kind of having this argument when their own banger happens and uh, suddenly they're forced to work together because the warp core is like discharging a ton of energy and they have to patch a bunch of hoses together with gas from the mycelial uh, stasis chambers in it and then uh, Jet Reno blasts electricity at the metal door to engineering and it kind of like knocks them all on their ass. And when they get up, the uh, Mucinex guy has gotten out of the spork box. There is a method that Jet Reno uh, implements every time we see her that feels like, I have an idea, I'm going to make a thing, I'm going to use the thing. Like bang, bang, bang. <laughs> and this is one of those scenes. Like yeah. shit gets built. She basically like straps on a proton pack and blows herself across the room. <laughs> and with very little conversation about what's about to happen or what could possibly happen. I feel like Awosakun and Jet Reno could be really good friends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Mucinex snot has attached itself to Tilly's forearm. She's got kind of a gooey Popeye look going on. <laughs> a a poopeye, if you will. <laughs> and it's fairly panic inducing. It's uh, it's not just panic-inducing. It's like, it's like making her trip balls, right? Yeah, I mean, after the initial panic wears off, it's clear that there's a uh, there's a relationship between the poop eye and her, in which uh, it's able to control her behavior or her level of stress. Yeah, but maybe we should come back to that. Yeah. Not long after Burnham and Saru get the the universal translator fix like the rest of the ship goes to shit but Saru at this point is so sick that they have to get him to six bay and uh he kind of he has like a pretty big confession here yeah and that is uh he's going through something called the vaharai which is a thing (laughs) it's a thing his dad told him about where uh when you get to be a certain age your body goes through changes (laughs) changes that result in your inevitable death and yeah. uh, and it has a special relationship to the to that short treks episode we saw where uh, Saru's people were sort of cul- gathered and called for slaughter by a, right. a race called the Ba'ul. He's like a chattel species, and they I guess get consumed by the Ba'ul as food. Uh, and this Vaharai uh, is is your death sentence when this when you get sick in this way. It means you're inevitably going to die so you go you go get culled because if you don't you'll go crazy and then die i was under the mistaken impression that you did not have to watch the the short treks episodes to i mean to get full value for the upcoming season but it seems like like that wasn't the case like you're really going to want to go back and watch those especially the one with saru because it it draws a, such a clear line directly to this episode no, yeah, I, I, I think that uh, it's really worth watching uh, ahead of this episode. At this point in time, uh, we've got three stories, Ben. We've got Disco Caught in the Spiderweb. We've got Saru's near-death experience. And in the deep, deep sea is the Spock Chase story, which is 
rarely referred to other than just the longer they stay stuck in this web, the further out Spock's getting to the degree that they might lose his path forever. I might even argue that that's the D. And yeah. The, the, and that Tilly's situation is, is either the B or the C. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, the the Spock situation is a ticking clock on this episode. I'm so surprised they keep bringing it up given the three stories of greater importance. Right. It seems like they are remarkably able to focus on that despite the existential threat to the ship and to two of their crew members. Yeah, that, that, that's especially comical when when references to that are made close to either the A or the B story. That's uh, a weak point in the up, I think. Yeah, so they, they haven't really figured out what this fear even wants with them. It, it doesn't seem to communicate in the same way that, that they are set up to. And uh, Michael Burnham kind of cracks the code for this when she goes down to engineering to see if they have any ideas and finds Tilly tripping her ass off in the spork box. Um, Stamets comes up with the idea of using this like this device that he uses to understand the mycelial network and trying to like retrofit it to help them communicate with May uh, to, to find out what the booger wants. Uh, but that, that kind of knocks loose an idea in Michael Burnham's mind that maybe the ultraviolet flashes that Saru has been complaining about are actually a form of communication from the sphere. And it is in pretty short order that they put it together that that's exactly what they are. And so they like rush up onto the bridge and talk the captain into not killing the sphere with <laughs> photon torpedoes just in time to like open up all of the communications arrays and download the entire knowledge of the sphere. A knowledge which goes back 100,000 years. Right. The themes in this are super TNG to me, you know, like coming across the that asteroid that's actually a, an archive of an alien race or whatever. It You're right. To the degree that I felt a lot of these story beats were a little derivative, and it made me wonder how many people watching Star Trek Discovery have no previous Star Trek viewing experience. Because as soon as Michael Burnham said, as soon as she had the epiphany that the sphere was trying to communicate with them. I felt like I was already there two scenes ago. Right. This is a theme that has deep roots in Star Trek and a story type that they have pulled off the shelf many times. Yeah. I, I really liked that this was kind of like two different versions of it in the same episode, though. Right. I liked that about it. I mean, it's it sounds like my comment is is dinging it, but, I mean, there's a familiarity to this pattern that I like that is yeah. that is comfortable and good. I agree. And it's a weird scene because it, it kind of, it's the episode kind of like looking at that issue with the fact that they're totally preoccupied with Spock and realizing that's a little ridiculous. Like the argument for doing the download is like, this is actually what Discovery's main mission is, mm-hmm. is to like find weird shit and explore it. Right. This is a, sh- a ship of science, so let's let's do this. And so they do the download, like, while conscious of the fact that they're kind of letting Spock slip away and also exposing themselves to potentially, like, blowing the ship up. Unlike a TNG-style narrative 
uh, Saru isn't like the spell on Saru isn't broken once the sphere is destroyed. Right. He's still very much uh, in critical condition. And also in critical condition is Tilly. They do. There's a pretty intense trepanation scene where Stamets does a left-handed, single-handed drill bit to the temple on Tilly, and he doesn't even put the like piece of tape on the drill bit to you know prevent it from going in further than he wants. Now, when you're using a cordless drill <laughs> on a coworker's temple. You're definitely gonna want to make sure you use both hands. We've uh, we've decided to use a drill press because we can, <laughs> we can set the depth very precisely and hold it still so that we don't accidentally <laughs> scramble her brain. I like to use a shot vac to gather any solid or liquid pieces that may fly <laughs> from your coworker's temple. Then, when we add the cortical stimulator, we're gonna use a thin set fiber reinforced mortar. <laughs> And work it in gently with a notch trowel. <laughs> Pretty rugged scene here, especially because of the moments that lead up to this. Like, it's, again, a lot like the Jet Reno plan earlier. A plan comes into motion very quickly, and then is it is implemented immediately. Yeah. And that moment between Stamets and Tilly, I found uh, really emotionally resonant and good. When they yeah. sing to each other, that was they sing really a nice. Space oddity to each other. Yeah, I think like you drop space oddity into the scene, and the emotional stakes are like decatupled or whatever. You know, I'm so glad it wasn't a Beastie Boy song. Like <laughs> Sylvia, Sylvia Tilly looks over at Stamets and she's like, I can't stand it. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking the same thing and the same song. Uh, (laughs) the continuing contractual obligation that star trek has to beastie boys llc yeah i think we end the show if that were to happen like i don't know how you go on if that's no we just walk away yeah we just have to we just have to walk away (laughs) uh the conversation between stamets and and may now through tilly is a bit of an fu to Stamets because you know his contention has been that using the mycelial network is is you know better for the environment or whatever than dilithium, but in fact there are intelligent species that live within the network, sort of outside of normal space, I guess, and uh, and the disco showing up from time to time has really fucked shit up for them. So May is actually on kind of like a very long shot mission to try and talk some sense into statements this episode maybe more than any other disco ep feels like it's foreshadowing a lot of the absence in technology that we've been introduced yeah and like this feels like a very warp five rule thing happening that happened yeah. toward the end of tng right Mercury's? yeah and i wondered i don't know like i felt like i walked away from season one understanding that the Jumps were doing damage to the mycelial network. I guess it was more the mirror universe version of the technology yeah. that was the problem, but it seemed like everybody knew that they shouldn't do that anymore and that they were going to knock it off with doing it. It's strange that no one who communicates with May is making a distinction between them and their mirror universe counterparts. Right. That it feels like would be necessary. 
Yeah, because if the damage was worse with the mirror universe technology, then that should be like somewhat exculpatory, right? Yeah. This conversation ends with Tilly getting fully engulfed in the goo because uh, May has given her like super strength and she pops out of the restraints. Jet Reno's like about to take the blowtorch to her and uh, and the goo just like totally engulfs Tilly. Back on the bridge, they are completing the download. The sphere explode and uh, it, it like uses its stasis field to save the discovery from the explosion. They got the... The last contact. They downloaded everything. Yeah, the uh, the the taskbar reaches the end <laughs> of the status window. Yeah, Transfer complete the, just in time. Pop the floppy disk out of the drive. Yeah. This coincides with Saru kind of like reaching the end, and there's a very emotional scene as he like walks off the bridge kind of being supported by Michael Burnham and all of the bridge crew like stand up and kind of like silently watch him leave and you think that that is going to be like the emotional farewell to the character and then we get a very long emotional farewell between Jess Saru and Michael Burnham in his quarters right i think this is the first time we've seen Saru's quarters and they're really cool he like he made them plant land uh, shirtless Saru appears to have never used a bathroom fan, and now he's going to lose the cleaning deposit on his quarters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It Fairly is looking moldy in there. <laughs> yeah, pretty gross. Uh, Michael Burnham uh, notices some garlic growing, and so she starts to cut some of that up because she sees those those ganglia start to come out, and she realizes <laughs> that he's not going to be needing them much longer. Tasty so. num nums. Yeah, she's just preparing a marinade. He gives her a knife to do it. As much of Saru's ganglia as we've ever seen, we see them in their entirety. They are fully dumped. Yeah. <laughs> and um, this scene has a lot of beats, like Saru's regrets that he didn't kind of share more of himself and his species with Starfleet to give people a better sense of who he is and what his people are all about. Um him imploring Michael Burnham to patch things up with Spock should should the opportunity arise and him asking her to kind of like do the final deed and it seems like cutting the ganglia off is what does it like if uh, if she takes a knife to him he'll pass away that is a big ask like she's she's really going to miss him and she's totally wrecked by this Ben I kind of feel like at like we've seen Michael Burnham reach moments of truth a couple of times in her life on this show. Mm-hmm. And in those previous moments, she's always maintained a Vulcan sensibility or stoicism. She's never been more human than she's been in this moment. Like there is no yeah. Vulcan in her at all. The idea that they're like sister and brother of the Giorgio family is yeah. is really in this scene too. Like they... They love each other on this level that it kind of makes me understand the disputes they've had in a different way as more like sibling disputes and sibling rivalry than just two kind of hot-headed, ambitious officers that are that happen to be stationed on the same ship. I feel like that was in there and I just didn't see it for what it was, you know? They've traded rank a couple of times too. 
which has made for interesting tension between them. Yeah. The scene ends in like such a surprising way because like Doug Jones is definitely brandoing all the way through this and yeah. like the scene with them walking off the bridge is a thousand percent you're convinced that this is like, oh fuck, like Saru is gonna die and he's not gonna be a character on the show anymore. Yeah, I was really ready for that. I was I was like very amazed by the self confidence of the show in doing that too. And I'm even more amazed in in a way that he doesn't die, you know? This is the tearful farewell where the character sticks around afterwards. They cut around to every bridge crewman as Saru was doing his walk back to his quarters and like a a tricorder got a cut to. Like every single person <laughs> and thing on the bridge got a goodbye. Yeah. In such a way that <laughs> The commemorative plaque on the yeah. wall got got a moment. Like, what's it going to mean for that plaque that Saru is dying? <laughs> There's like a dustpan in the corner. Like, that was Saru's dustpan. <laughs> Adam, it turns out that the ganglia were kind of the source of all of Saru's fear. The fear that he like walks around with all the time is gone now that his ganglia have fallen all the way out. Yeah, they find out in Six Bay, like Dr. Pollard gives him an exam and is like, yeah, outside of the loss of your ganglia, you're right as rain. Yeah. And head on back to work, crewman. Holy shit. Like Saru is describing a fairly pronounced like change in his mental capacity. And the yeah. doctor's like, yeah, it's okay. it's okay. Like, go ahead and clock in. <laughs> I don't think that's good doctoring. She must have gone to the same school that Bones Recoy went to. Yeah, yeah. Clearly, Dr. Pollard's been concussed. Yeah. <laughs> Another, like, testament to, like, some of the better writing on this show. The implications of this are discussed in this scene, you know? It's yeah. not left for you and I to go, like, whoa, what does that mean? Right. He goes, like, yeah, like, so all of the... Everything I've ever been told about the the Vaharai is bullshit, and you don't have to die just suddenly when you're one of my people. And I feel like Saru is going to have a new like goal in life going forward. Yeah, I feel that way too. It it sure seems like no one has ever gone through to the other side of his experience the way he has. That's nuts. Yeah. I mean, it's nuts that he's the first one. The Ba'ul are really running a tight ship of their own. Acceptance is a pretty strange thing, huh? Yeah, it makes you think about, like, the meaning of the idea of faith, you know? Like, it was an article of faith in that he didn't even question the veracity of it the way you don't question gravity. Right. Luckily, the last thing the Sphere saw was Spock's shuttle, and so they have uh, an extended map of his trajectory so they didn't lose him after all. Uh, my question is, is the sphere on Spock's body count list? Did Spock also <laughs> kill the sphere? Oh, man. I don't know. I don't know either. I'm going to say probably not, but that was a thought that came to mind. Like, he's just done some crazy killing spree. <laughs> <laughs> he did some of that karate on it that we've seen in the in the promos. Yeah. They've cut Tilly out of the... Ghostbusters dog like Sigourney Weaver at the end of that movie <laughs> and uh, and Stamets has decided to take action to close the mycelial network forever yeah and and 
it's been discussed a bit that Tilly has been tripping on mushrooms when she had the thing on her. And she's standing kind of just like soaked in mushroom goo when uh, when they get her out. And you see the the spore particles all over the engineering section. And Stamets and Jet Reno start tripping as well. Maybe there are no rooms on Discovery with bathroom fans. Because if they had <laughs> one here, I think they would have gobbled up all those spores. Yeah, I, I kind of thought that like the particles that they're showing us here are more just kind of like a visual language to indicate that they're high because they I did see. get like blasted in the face when they cut the thing open to pull Tilly out. Right, right. Adam, I don't know if you have much experience with hallucinogens, but uh, I, I feel like they are often very badly mishandled in film and television. Right. This felt really good. This felt like pretty pretty close to on point for me oh interesting um like the the way shapes kind of change scale uh and and the way they kind of like they're kind of like vibing with each other like stamets starts talking about jet reno's aura and she's like i was just thinking about your aura like that's a real thing they realize that they're very fucked up and stamets gets like a hypo spray with uh like orange juice in it (laughs) presumably <laughs> and uh they they come right back down it's a hypo spray full of orange juice and a massage <laughs> yeah yeah they put a chill out tent right in the hypo spray <laughs> and yeah it turns out tilly has uh has gone back into the may she's kind of the barb from stranger things of star trek discovery oh shit rsvp barb yeah Cause doesn't that like that shit looks just like Stranger Things when they look inside? You know, we get the camera angle from inside the the spore goo. Wow, I wonder. I haven't looked into this, but I wonder if there are any shared credits between the two shows with creature design and and all this stuff. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. So that's the end of it. Yeah. Did you like the episode, Adam? A couple of things that I really liked in the episode were the creature design for both the the gooey may i thought looked really good also saru's chest plate and how they made saru look sicker and sicker over the course of the episode i thought they did a great job there Mm -hmm. i really liked what happened to saru at the end that moment where he realizes that like his entire organizing principle might have been a lie i think was a good moment (laughs) I liked being reminded that, like, the essential mission of ships in Star Trek are to welcome, study, and respect life instead of, yeah. like, I don't think, I think Pike might have lost the thread on that initially for a yeah. moment, but I can understand it, too. Like, they're, the goal that governs most Starfleet captains is is the protection of their ship and their crew, so I got that, too. But... I don't read reviews of this show before we record it, but what I did see were several headlines calling this one of the best episodes that Disco's ever made. And I have a hard time calling this that because as much as I like the episode, it felt like the polarity between story and message was reversed in a way that I don't like in Star Trek episodes that do a lot of preaching Like, Mm -hmm. I want to come to these realizations on my own without getting so beat over the head with them. Like, that sentimentality of 
that you get with the death of a character, the potential death of a character, is starting to feel earned. I don't think right. a couple of episodes ago you could have walked up to the moment of Saru's death and gotten this much heat off of it. And I thought that was great. I think all in all, I like the episode but did not love it for all of those reasons. One other thing I wanted to bring to your attention, Ben, in case it doesn't come up, is yeah. for as well-written as this episode was, I thought a few parts of it were glaringly not good. And that was the need for this script to go to simile school. I'm as busy as a guy who's really, really busy. Yeah, what a Talib Kweli write this. We, go episodes too, like Attack of the Clones. we got, I think, five or six similes. And I think this show needs to fucking cut it out with that because uh, like a fly in a web, like mushrooms on a pizza, like army ants eating a water buffalo, like letters in a sentence, like an early warning system. Those were the five that I wrote down. I think there were more. But that's just too much. And that feels like that's stuff that I think you can comb through before you lock a script. Yeah. Like, I don't want to detect the pattern in this stuff. Right. And I'm starting to see it. And I don't want that. It's weird when Jet Reno, like, dunks on Stamets making analogies. And she says, like, I'll use duct tape to fix your analogies or something. Yeah. Like, you can't have both a bunch of strained analogies and also a character making fun of strained analogies. I mean, I think they could if all of those analogies were contained in that scene, but they aren't. They're all over the episode in in a bunch of different settings. So that's where I am with that. Uh, Generally, I liked it. What about you, Ben? No, I feel feel the same way. I I don't think I can articulate it any better than you did. Wow. Do you want to go uh, check some P1s? Let's check some P1s, like some podcast hosts who are checking some P1s. <laughs> priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. Adam, we don't have any priority one messages today, but if folks want to support the show, uh, we really appreciate it. You go to maximumfund.org slash jumbotron. It's 100 bucks for a personal message and 200 for a commercial message. And uh, they help cover the costs of producing this program. Top of the morning to ya. This episode is brought to you by the St. Patrick's Day Shamrock Shavers Manscaped. This year, don't just chase rainbows. Make your own pot of gold and groom your little leprechaun with the leaders in Below the Kilt Care. I didn't make that up. That's actual copy sent to us by the great folks over at Manscaped who make the shaver that I use downstairs on my little leprechaun. And uh, I recommend it. Uh, it works great. Uh, trimming the hedges in your Irish garden isn't just for below the belt. You can complete your look with their new signature Beard Hedger Pro Kit plus Handyman Electric Face Shaver. Everything they make is really good and high quality, and this new trimmer that they have comes with two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blades. They've got one for a classic trim and a new foil blade to go smooth wherever your heart desires. So get 20% off plus free shipping with code TREK at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and get free shipping with code TREK at manscaped.com. This St. Patrick's Day, make sure your little hairy leprechaun is luckier than ever with Manscaped. I have tried so many meal services over the years. After all, I am a podcast host. And I gotta tell you, Factor Meals is my favorite. Why? 
Because I can go from what am I going to have for dinner to eating a great dinner in exactly two minutes with Factor Meals. And don't sleep on their smoothies either. I got six of these in the box this week. Mango, tropical fruit, strawberry or banana. They're all amazing. They're like meal supplements I can enjoy while I'm on the go. Head to factormeals.com slash trek50 and use the code trek50 to get 50% off. Again, that's the code trek50 at factormeals.com slash trek50 to get 50% off. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. Hey, Ben. What's that, Adam? Did you discover yourself a drunk Shimoda? Incredible. Drunk Shimoda. Yeah, it's actually kind of a double Shimoda for me, this episode. Um, And when we talk about things that weren't necessarily great in the ep, uh, this was one of them. Uh, Mine is going to Captain Pike and Michael Burnham. Mm. At one point, they're in Six Bay talking to Saru, and then they like... They're kind of like conferencing with each other, talking about some other shit. But it's in the midst of like, there's a guy on the slab like who's like bleeding from his guts, and they're they're just like they're kind of lending a hand to the doctor, but also not paying any attention to the doctor. How absorbent are shelf liners? <laughs> this is a scene that made me wonder about that because they're just jamming shelf liners into this hole. Yeah, I just thought it was like such a weird and bad scene. <laughs> What compelled it to be set that way? Like, it didn't add anything to anything. And in fact, it made it, it it seemed dumb that they would still be there. Like, the ship is under threat. Why are they, like, dilly-dallying in Six Bay, cramming shelf liners into this guy's wound while an actual medical professional could be doing that? I totally agree. I don't think it's any secret to anyone that we watched these episodes a couple of times before recording. And the context for this scene was not made any clearer through multiple viewings. Like, we don't know who this guy is. We don't know how they were injured. It seems like a scene that was made because it would be interesting versus whether it made any sense in the context of the story. No justification was built into it, and it seemed silly. And in an episode that seems like almost self-consciously 
plugging holes that have been built into this show previously. Like, what a weird thing to have happen. It was a choice so weird, it almost made me wonder if production wagged this dog. Like, if yeah. if the ready room set was being used for something else or being redressed, for example. Like, I wonder if oh. they just didn't have another place to have the conversation. Right. Where would the two of them be? Yeah. Where they have, like, a relatively private conversation? Right. Good call. Know. Did you have a drunk Shimoda? I mean, it doesn't get any more obvious than Stamets and Jet Reno tripping in engineering. Like, I think <laughs> I think that's as Shimoda as it gets. And that may be a pretty basic Shimoda, but I couldn't Slap find one. Slap me as one. hard as you can. Yeah, I couldn't find one better than that. What do we have coming up on the next episode? Uh, well, there was a bit of an edited package at the end of uh, of this one showing Tilly kind of waking up in the upside down. Um, mm. That seems to imply that we're going to spend some time in the mycelial network as a place um and also the disco kind of like it, it almost looks like half halfway jumping into the network like it, it's like kind of half under underwater yeah it kind of looks like it's been ditched yeah it's a cool look it is a cool look and then the only other thing that I thought was worth calling out was uh, was Giorgio and the other Section 31 people appear to be there. So I wondered if that lended credence to my theory that they have something to do with what's going on with Spock or if they're like also chasing him so happen to be in the neighborhood or what. But yeah, they seem to they seem to have something to do with uh, this jump into the into the network that we're going to see on the next step. This may be a good part of the show to uh, share our predictions, should we have any. I think that's a good one by you. I think I'm going to share one right now, Ben, which is I think the Ba'ul are Kelpians. Whoa! I think they are Kelpians who have lost their uh, their ganglia. Damn. Or there's some sort of like very close relationship between them that is like that. Also, I think Michael Burnham created the Red Angel to scare Spock as a kid, and and in doing that... Spock has created this monster and it is now his responsibility to destroy it. Like, I feel like there is a relationship between this thing and Michael Burnham that is more direct. We're getting like scenes with Michael Burnham where she walks up to the moment of telling people what she did to Spock to create uh, the wedge between them. And I, yeah, I think, I think she made this thing. Wow. It's always fun to make predictions that get proven wrong uh, down yeah. the road, but I'm I'm willing to do that for fun. You know, it's the most fun is like 18 months from now, somebody will tweet at us laughing that we got something wrong. Yeah, and yep. I'll feel and I will feel genuinely terrible. Like we will oh, feel yeah, bad, bad anew. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a cool part of this project. I love it. Uh, maybe the best part of this project, Ben, is that we don't edit it. We have a producer. His name is Rob Schulte, and we will yeah. give the show to him. Take it away, Robs. Thanks, Robs. The Greatest Discovery is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Adam Pranica and Ben Harrison. The show's produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte, and our theme music and interstitials are by Adam Ragusia. You can support this show by heading on over to MaximumFun.org slash donate or by leaving us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. 
When using social media, please use the hashtag greatestdiscovery or greatestgen. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR. Adam is at CutForTime. And I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks. We'll see you next week. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.